The reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1179 in the Church Bibles. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, let me just ask you um, just a quick survey here. How many of you have been watching Downton Abbey? On TV. Any Downton Abbey fans? Got a few hands going up. Any Spooks fans? Got a few. Given a choice between the two, what would you go for? Downton? Spook, yeah, yeah, probably torn between the two. I think uh, I'd probably go for Spooks, but uh, I do quite like a bit of Downton as well. Um, it is, um, I guess it's sort of quintessential British drama, isn't it, really? You've got all that uh, you look for in a great British drama the costumes, the uh, the big country house, the English manners and customs as they maybe used to be. Um, but also the good old British class system. You know, it's a bit like uh, upstairs, downstairs. I'm sure there'll be quite a few people who remember that uh, programme going back a few years now. And there's something quite um, interesting about the whole us and them thing, isn't there? Um, probably particularly intrigues us now in the 21st century, um, 100 or so years on. Quite a lot has happened in that century. You know, you've had communism, you've had um, the emancipation of women, you've had abolition, abolition of apartheid. A lot of things have brought us together, um, united us. Um, and it's, it's this whole thing of, uh, of uh, class system is still quite interesting. Certainly for us, when we went to Brazil, it was uh, interesting to um, employ our maid. You know, it's a bit of a culture shock, and not something that us British find very straightforward. Um, okay, having an employer-employee relationship in the office, but when it's in your own home, a um, bit, bit strange. And interesting about uh, Downton Abbey was um, when there was movement between the classes. 
Amongst the servants, there were those who were quite happy with their position. Uh, Very loyal and trustworthy servants, and that's all they wanted to be. Um, There are others who wanted to escape from that that, that position, to improve their lot. And sadly, uh, if you watch the the series, most of them failed. There was the uh, servant girl, Ethel, you may remember, who uh, ended up getting pregnant and kicked out of the house. Um, There was old Thomas, who tries to make a bit of money on the black market and ends up losing everything. Goes back into uh, the house. Uh, but even more intriguing, I think, was the movement in the other direction. We had uh, Lady Sybil, one of the, the daughters of the Earl, who um, became a nurse during the war and um, then shocked the house by announcing her engagement to the chauffeur. She was prepared to give up um, her whole inheritance, her whole comfortable way of life, to be with the one she loved. And people who are considered in human terms to have given up everything, are often considered to be a little bit crazy, aren't they? They produce shock. But there's no human sacrifice that gets anywhere near the sacrifice that we're looking at in this passage this morning from Philippians. How Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, to whom all angels or creatures would bow, should give up his position in heaven and come to earth. He gave up everything and he gave it up voluntarily for us. And that is the mystery of the incarnation. Why, if you were God, would you give up your glory in heaven and come down and humble yourself by coming into the world of mankind? In the world's eyes, that is not just humbling yourself, that is humiliating yourself. If you have something, then you you keep hold of it or you use it to, to get more. To throw it away is seen in the world's eyes to be weakness. And yet, why is it that God values humility so much? And why do we, if we are Christians here this morning, find it so hard to be humble? Well, what does this passage teach us this morning? Well, the first thing it teaches us is that Christ humbled himself for us. Have a look at these verses um, 6 to 11 in uh, Philippians 2 which shall be familiar to to many of us, I'm sure. They are believed to be an old hymn or creed that uh, the early church would have sung or recited together as they expressed uh, the fundamentals of their their belief. And the first thing we read here in verse 6 is that Christ Jesus was in very nature God. He's part of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. He's the three persons in one Godhead who are all equal in their, their divine being although they have different roles to perform, the Son being obedient to the Father, we're told. But what it says here is that although Jesus was equal with God, it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The precise meaning of that word that has been translated grasped is quite difficult to to understand. One suggestion the commentators have uh, come up with, it it is that uh, as God, enjoying the glory of heaven... Jesus didn't try and cling on to that, hold on to it. Unlike many human leaders we we see who reach a position of power and status and are desperate to hold on to it at all costs. Yesterday we saw huge protests in Russia following last week's elections, which many people say were were rigged. Uh, Russians were challenging the uh, the hold on power, particularly of Vladimir Putin, saying, you know, maybe give it up. Let go. What is it that makes him cling on to, to power in that way? 
Well, Jesus didn't cling on to his heavenly status. He, he gave it up. He gave it up. Another way of understanding this word grasp would be in the sense of using it to his advantage. Again, it's a very human thing for those in positions of power to, uh, to use it to, to their advantage, to, to feather their own nest, as it were. And in many ways, that was what original sin was all about. Man was given a position of privilege. He was made in the image of God to enjoy a relationship with God. He was given um, a world to enjoy, to, to rule over under God's rule. And yet what happened? People grasped after the chance to be like God. People weren't happy with that. They grasped after something more. Now, whichever sort of emphasis you want to take, I think the main point comes, though, in the next two verses, and it's expressed in different ways, but um, which all point to the same thing. Christ Jesus behaved in a very different way than is natural for human beings. He humbled himself for us. He chose to take on a lowly position. He wasn't humiliated in the sense of uh, being forced to do something against his will. It wasn't like a Colonel Gaddafi hiding for safety in that underground pipe, only to be dragged out and uh, beaten and killed. No, Jesus chose to be humble. He chose to become a man, knowing that it would lead to his suffering and his death. So what did it mean, though, for Jesus to humble himself? Well, firstly, as it says here, he made himself nothing in verse 7. He made himself nothing. Literally, he empties himself. Which, again, has prompted lots of discussion. If he emptied himself, what exactly did he empty himself of? Some will say, well, it was his divine attributes, his, um, uh, his divine power and knowledge. He simply retained his holiness and his love. That's the way Wesley described it in his great hymn, And Can It Be? He says, emptied himself of all but love. But I wonder if that's really what um, is meant here. And rather than giving up something of his divine nature, more likely he was giving up the status and majesty that went with his divine being. The glory that we looked at last week, remember in Titus? As we sang it in that first... uh, one of those early songs this morning, we said, you laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me. Jesus gave up his heavenly throne for a while before being exalted to the place where he really belonged as he conquered death and rose to life. He made himself nothing. Another way of saying he humbled himself is to say, look at down here, he took the very nature of a servant. Recalls the the prophecies of of Isaiah. I want to flick um, just briefly to Isaiah 40, 42. Page 727 of the Church Bibles. Here is my servant, he says, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not 
snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is the servant that is prophesied. But what is humble about a servant? Well, what is humble about a servant is that he, he serves another. His job is to put other people first, to make sure that they are okay rather than himself. And for God to choose to do that is quite amazing, isn't it? It'd be one thing for him to become a man, but to, to choose to become a, a powerful man, you know, a warrior-type figure, a ruler of the, the planet who everybody is in awe of, even though they're human. The sort of Messiah the Jews were expecting. But he actually chose to become a normal human being, a carpenter. But his divine power was in his authority to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, to bring back from the dead, to forgive sin. All of which were aspects of serving, of putting others first. And the reason he was able to come and serve was because he was all-sufficient in himself. He was God. He was secure in the relationship that he had with the Father and the Spirit. And so he came to give, to serve. It says he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Jesus Christ said, I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many the other interesting thing about Downton Abbey was when it came to the First World War that um, both servants and masters went off together to serve their country, to fight in that war. And life in the trenches wasn't really much different for, for them whether they were uh, an officer or a soldier. But together they were living their lives. They are giving their lives in the same way. Jesus' servanthood meant that he will become obedient to the Father to the point of dying for people. It wasn't an easy thing to do. We know the torment he went through, but he did it so that we might have life. And that is what we celebrate as we come around the Lord's Supper later on. But you may be thinking, well, why does Paul mention this in this letter here? Why does his readers here know, need to know this? Well, the context of this is that Paul has been spent the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians talking about how thankful he is to God for the way that he saved them, for the good work he's begun in them, a work which he will bring to completion until the day of Christ. He's looking ahead to that day. He wants them to grow. He wants them to have joy in their faith. He wants them to become like Jesus. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, to not be afraid. And all of that is in the context that Christ will come again. And will they be ready for when he comes again? And this is the Advent message. That because Christ has come already, we can be confident that he will come again. But until he does, we need to focus on becoming like him. And the main way in which we can do that is in, is in our next point. We become like Christ by humbling ourselves. A lack of humility, which we often refer to as pride, is what separates man from God. Without humility, we cannot believe. If we're not able to see our need for Jesus Christ because we're so confident in ourselves, in our own achievements, if we're wrapped up in our pride, then we can't turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And there are many things that hold us back from giving our lives to Christ, but most of them are rooted in, in pride. 
if the reason for us rejecting Christ is because of um, intellectual doubts that we have, that is effectively saying, well, I know better than God. I'm not willing to, to give my doubts to him. The reason for rejecting Christ is that we don't think we have any need for him. We are saying we are, we are confident in ourselves, in who we are already. We don't need anybody else. It is because we don't want to let go or can let control over our lives to somebody else. We want to carry on doing the things we want to do. Then again, our, our pride is in saying, I don't want to serve somebody else. I don't want to worship anybody else. As I mentioned last Sunday evening, it's believing in the words of that uh, song by Jessica Simpson, I belong to me. I don't belong to you. Again, that is pride. But Paul is writing here to those who are already believers. And just because we are Christians here this morning, if we are, that doesn't mean that we are free of pride. It still has a grip on us. There's a lack of uh, humility that uh, leads churches to, or people in churches, to discouragement. makes people leave churches sometimes. Often it's something which uh, tears churches apart. So how do we act with humility? Well, verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There are hundreds of things in church life that are not mentioned in the Bible that we can disagree over. That can make us upset, that can make us fall out with other people. And we're tempted to say, no, I know I'm right, and I'm not budging on this thing. You know, he or she offended me, and um, I'm not talking to them until I've got an apology. Or this is definitely the right thing to do. I I know better than anybody else. They just don't see that they've got it wrong. Humility is to say, well, maybe, maybe I'm not right. Maybe, even if I am right, the issue is not as important as I'm making it out to be. I just need to let it go and give it into God's hands. He's far more interested in my relationship with that person than whether I'm right or wrong. Humility is to ask ourselves... Why do I feel so strongly about, us, about this? Is it out of selfish ambition? Is it because I'm so pleased with um, what I think that uh, I want to promote it and promote myself? Is it just a vain conceit? Is it, I just don't want to back down? Well, verse 4 here says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are we thinking of the interests of others? Paul's concern for the Christians in Philippi is that they mature in their faith, that they are united in their faith. They are of one mind. And that should be our concern for each other. Why is it, though, sometimes that we do become like this? That we we do succumb to pride? Well, often it's because I think we're not secure in who we are in Christ. And the reason that Christ was able to, to come and to serve was because he had nothing to gain from coming to earth, but everything to give. And if we believe that we have everything that we can possibly need in Christ, then we will find it more easy to adopt the same servant-hearted attitude as he did. In the uh, leadership course last week, we were looking at the, what was called the cycle of grace and the cycle of grief. Um, The cycle of grace, which um, should come up on the screen, is where you uh, start uh, from the position of acceptance in Christ. And um, your resources are constantly being renewed through your dependence on him. 
You're being sustained. And it's in that secure position that uh, we have significance. And because of that significance and identity, that is how we are able to serve. So our achievement is actually in a loving, obedient ministry. It's in service, but that comes from acceptance in Jesus Christ. Now, what we also looked at is how very easy it is to slip into the cycle of grief. And that is when our achievement is not service, but it's activity. Activity that starts there at the bottom, and it's that activity that gives us identity. It gives us a sense of acceptance. And so we continue to try and achieve, so we feel that we are um, accepted by other people. And of course, that is quite fragile. It makes us continue to want to, to do things, to be accepted. And it's in that situation that we can become bitter because we, we fail ourselves. We, we look at ourselves and we think we just are not doing what we think we should be doing. Or we maybe look at others and think, um, well, look at them, they're not doing what they should be doing. And that's when we lose our humility. Paul writes, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Okay, well, we need to follow the example of Christ in this humility, but where does that humility lead? Aren't we just, at the end of the day, following somebody who was a loser, somebody who was humiliated, somebody who was killed? Well, in his life, Jesus taught that the, uh, the last shall be first, that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And if Christ had simply died, there would be a sense of, well, so what? You know, what about the enemy of death still? What about the enemy of sin? How have they been dealt with? But Jesus died and was raised to life. He achieved victory over sin and death. And the, the great encouragement from this passage as we look to Christ coming again is that he has been exalted to the highest place. He's been given the name that is above every name. He's been placed in that position of greatest honour and greatest power. Blessing and honour, we sang earlier on, belong to you. And the noticeable change in this passage as we look at it, as you go into verses 9 to 11, is that the focus has changed now a little bit from Jesus to the Father. How the Father intervenes here to exalt the Son. And the reason that therefore that comes in verse 9 for him exalting Jesus is because of his total self-humbling. It's like a sort of vindication. It's like the Father demonstrating his approval of the Son. The Father loves the Son because he's demonstrated his obedience. Because the Son loved the Father so much that he chose to be obedient even to the point of death. Rather than abandon the assignment that the Father had given him. The Father exalts the Son because the Father loves to exalt the humble. And so it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And you may ask yourself, well, what exactly was that name that he gave Jesus that he didn't have before? Was it Jesus? But I mean, Jesus was the name of the, the humble servant who, who was crucified. But it might help just to turn to, to Acts chapter 2 for a minute. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, page 1094. 
is Peter in his uh, first sermon at uh, Pentecost. And uh, look what he says in verse 32 there. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then down in verse 36, as he finishes his sermon, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The name that Jesus has been given as he was exalted was Lord and Christ. Not that he wasn't Lord and Christ before his resurrection, he was, but he had not fulfilled the mission of the Christ, of the Messiah, until he had died for our sin and risen again. Therefore, before the death and resurrection, the Lordship of Christ over the world hadn't been fulfilled. In order to be acknowledged as Christ, as Lord, the Son of God had to come, he had to defeat the enemy, he had to lead his people in triumph over sin and Satan and death. The name that is above every name, therefore, is Lord. The Lord victorious over all his enemies. The Lord who's redeemed a people for himself. And for those of us here this morning who are Christians already, we have submitted our lives to Christ as Lord. He's our Saviour, but he's also our Lord. He's our King. We know that he reigns in our lives. But we all know also that that kingship is not visible in this earth. But when he comes again, the name of Jesus, every knee, it says here, will bow, whether angels in heaven or of the living on the earth or the dead under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible tells us that those who have not acknowledged him as Lord now will one day be forced to do that. For when he appears in glory, there'll be something about that glory will will make everybody have to acknowledge that, yes, he is Lord. But if we do it then, it'll be to our everlasting shame. If we do it now, if we voluntarily bow the knee, it'll be to our everlasting glory and joy. To those who in faith humble themselves, and bow the knee, we are promised we'll be exalted, we will receive the crown of life, we will reign with Jesus forever. Praise him.